Hi, I'm Andy, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. It is lunchtime on the West Coast on Wednesday, October the 28th. And as we speak, the titans of Wall Street are being literally grilled in Washington, D.C. by those tech-savvy senators who, who know all about the internet and Silicon Valley. Uh, it's, uh, it's, quite a, it's quite a show, my understanding. The Google, Facebook, Twitter guys are being grilled by senators who are explaining to them how to edit tweets. There is indeed, a, I think, a, a growing hysteria about technology. Uh, I hope I have some responsibility in that. I, uh, I warned everyone 15 years ago about this, although I'm beginning to become a little ambivalent about the hysteria. One guy who's always been very, very down-to-earth and grounded and sensible both uh, about the for and against tech camps is Larry Downs, my friend from uh, Berkeley, California. He's just up the street at home doing uh, his social distancing like the rest of us. Uh, Larry's last book, Pivot to the Future, um, was a very sensible analysis of, of how to fix tech and make it um, beneficial for society. He's written a number of books, the first big best-selling book. Uh, what was it, Larry, your, your first book? Unleashing the Killer App. Unleashing the Killer App. Larry unleashed it, made a lot of money, and, and now lives in the Berkeley Hills. Uh, <laughs> Larry had, a, a, I thought, a very sensible piece in um, in the Harvard Business Review uh, a couple of days ago about regulating what he called a measured approach to regulating fast-changing tech. As I said, Larry is, as always, a very sensible guy. He's neither for or against technology. He understands the need for some regulation, but he's certainly not in favor of shutting Silicon Valley or the internet down. Uh, Larry, why do we need a, a, a measured approach? A, a measured approach to uh, to big tech. Well, obviously, as you say, there's there's tremendous benefits. We we really can't deny that that there are tremendous benefits. Of course, there are costs that go with those benefits. And the more we become uh, committed to technology, the more we rely on it, depend on it, the more clear it becomes both what those costs are and what those benefits are. The problem is, I think, uh, after several years of uh, of the kind of public conversation being entirely, uh, you know, slavishly devoted to tech, uh, we've now had several years on the other side, where really all we hear about are the downsides, the side effects, the the, the problems. Some of them real, some of them I think exaggerated. Uh, and there's a lot of push now for regulators to intervene. Uh, if we do intervene, uh, you know, we should do it for the right reasons and do it in the right way. Otherwise, we risk losing out on all the benefits that we now enjoy, but more importantly, on on the benefits of future technologies that are just now sort of starting to come into commercial use. 
absolutely, Larry. And one of the things I liked about your piece is that you didn't go on and on about controlling Twitter or Facebook. There is a need, of course, for that conversation. But the conversation and now, I think, has become both hysterical uh, in, a, in a mental state and also too narrow. Uh, your piece focuses on the broad, uh, the, the broad panorama of the future. You talk about healthcare, housing, agriculture, transportation, all these areas which are about to radically transform the world, probably more than Facebook or Twitter or even Google. Um, perhaps, Larry, we might start with healthcare. How yeah. is healthcare going to change the world uh, in the 2020s? Yeah, right. So, of course, during the pandemic, we're already seeing uh, some pretty significant changes. Uh, practitioners and insurers who were very resistant to telehealth, uh, suddenly all the, the reasons that that wasn't a good idea evaporated. Uh, and now we understand that uh, particularly for people who are distant or in rural or sparsely populated areas, telehealth is the only health uh, that they're going to have. So the more robust that can be right now, maybe it's, you know, talking to your doctor the way you and I are talking, but in the future, you know, the doctor should be able to monitor uh, vital signs, take readings and so on using devices, uh, you know, your watch or any other kind of wearable device uh, and be able to really, you know, proactively monitor health uh, as you are going about your day uh, in a much more cost-effective and efficient manner, and I think in a much more uh, fair manner in terms of getting that kind of uh, a level of care to everybody, not just obviously the most uh, wealthy people. In There's also piece, some. Yeah, yeah, in your piece, Larry, you 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 talk about the need perhaps to regulate three D technology when it comes to the creation of artificial limbs. Yeah, and this really profound revolution, which is is not just science fiction; it's actually real. Yeah, yeah, there, it's amazing what's happening in in the world of prosthetic devices, uh, both in terms of just getting customized prosthetics, which is very, very big improvement uh, over the sort of off the shelf version for everybody who who needs a prosthetic, and then also having those prosthetics be connected so you get biofeedback as you're learning how to use, for example, an artificial leg uh, that it's sending uh, sensory input to your brain to tell you you know, how to get used to it. Uh, it. It's so profound, you know, obviously for, for people who've lost a limb, but also for people who are recovering from stroke or, or other kinds of, uh, of neural diseases, um, the advances in prosthetics are already being quite impressive. But isn't it more than just prosthetics? That's one part of the medical future. But another part is where we need to draw a line in terms of, if you like, computerizing the body or, or distinguishing in legal terms between the human being and the computer, is that going to need to be regulated? Well, you know, I guess we have to wait and see. Uh, obviously, um, we have already been engaging in regulation right, right off the very beginning, the, the, the day after. I, I like to point out that the day after the Scottish uh, scientists uh, revealed Dolly the cloned sheep way back in the, uh, in the uh, 90s, uh, that was day one. Day two was Bill Clinton uh, declaring uh, a moratorium on any research on cloning in the United States. One day it was science fiction. One day it was real. The next day it was banned. Um, and I think we'll see other kinds of disruptive technologies like that that are really going to throw us psychologically, culturally, ethically for a loop and are going to require you know, some kind of regulatory response my hope, of course, is that it's a, a response that's balanced rather than one that's just based on panic. 
Larry, you and I have both been going to the CES show for many years in Las Vegas. And every year we go, we we get bombarded with marketing about smart homes. But you're suggesting that the smart home now is also a reality. And this is another space, another industry, another changing environment that, that is going to need to be regulated or we need to think about regulation for smart homes. Yeah, I mean, obviously, we've already had these uh, early embarrassments where sort of uh, usually kind of startup uh, manufacturers, a lot of them overseas, have introduced these uh, gimmicky devices in the market and done so without thinking about any security. So you had the, you know, the baby cameras that were hackable because they didn't have any password and people were, were talking to other people's uh, children and you know this kind of stupidity. Uh, we obviously needed much better standards and, and much better practices from the industry. Failing that, we're going to need uh, regulatory solutions. But yeah, the smart home, you know, I've now in, in, in the course of the last six months, I've made my garage door smart. I've made my irrigation system smart. And they're, you know, it's really a great peace of mind and it's really saving water. And it's, it's really great, particularly, I think, um, as I said in the piece for seniors, uh, we want them to age in place as long as possible. They want that. We want that. It's best for society as well. And a lot of these uh, developments in, in the Internet of Things and then smart home are really going to extend, I think, the length of time that, that seniors can stay in their homes. What do you make, Larry, of the arguments in books like The Age of Surveillance Capitalism that, that smart home is just a, a euphemism for a new kind of surveillance state um, controlled by big tech? Yeah, well, it, it may be a surveillance state, um, but in this sense, the surveillance is important, right? You want you want the medical practitioners. Well, we, we, yeah, but as long as we know who's watching us and why yeah. they're watching us. So is the core of regulation of smart homes about privacy and, 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 and who has access and controls the data? Yeah, I don't I think it's it's less about privacy than it is about security, than making sure that that uh, that the data can only be accessed by you know the people that are supposed to access it and then that there's transparency on the part of the of the providers of the platforms of the internet you know everyone who's involved in collecting and transmitting that data that it's clear what they're doing with it and that they have permission to do with it but then it really becomes much more a matter of security than anything else uh larry i've uh, i i have another show called regenerate which is about the reinvention of the soil um and the environment. You, you focus also on agriculture. You suggest mm -hmm. that uh, the agricultural sector is being uh, revolutionized now by uh, by smart tech, and that the issue of regulating agriculture will become increasingly important in the 2020s. Uh, what's the big deal about smart agriculture? Yeah, well, so, I mean, the big piece of it is really about sustainability and efficiency. So I mentioned I, I put in smart irrigation control at my own home. And one of the things I'm learning is that I was uh, grossly overwatering and watering at the wrong time. The system checks the weather, it checks the soil conditions. And apparently I've, you know, it's reduced my water usage by 40, 50%, uh, even during the, 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 the uh, dry months of the year. So you imagine that on a larger scale, on an agricultural scale, if we know, you know when it needs fertilizer, we'll use less fertilizer or we'll use the right fertilizer and we won't use as much water and we'll you know, uh, be much better stewards of the, of the land and so on from a sustainability standpoint. The, we'll get more produce, we'll get more uh, effect using less 
resources, and particularly using less resources we don't want to use unless we have to, such as uh, fertilizers. Um, uh, and I, I feel know, that, but 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 where does the where do the limits or the needs for regulation come in when it comes to agriculture? Well, I think on that front, it's less the digital stuff, and it's more of the you know the ge genetic modifications and and how we uh, sort of hack into the the, the biome. Um, there's clearly some some big risks and a lot of unknowns with uh, with how a lot of that has proceeded so far, and certainly. Uh, obviously, you know, we can't afford to introduce a, 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 a strain of a particular fruit or vegetable that's going to wipe out all the other strains and then turns out it's very susceptible. This happened with bananas, for example. Uh, if we stick to one culture, uh, we risk losing all of it if, uh, if it's not resilient enough. to. So a lot of those kinds of things, it's not so much the, the, the data collection uh, as it is the actual uh, technology of agriculture itself. So, so far, your observations don't seem to be very dramatic. Let's get to the fourth area, uh, smart transportation, smart yes. cars. Um, we've, again, been hearing about smart cars for years. We've been told that we will no longer be driving our cars, but we all are still driving our cars, even in Silicon Valley. Uh, how do you envisage the need and limits on regulation for smart transportation in the future? Right. So obviously, transportation is an area that's already heavily regulated, uh, has been, you know, since the horse and buggy days, if not, uh, if not before that. And a lot of the infrastructure is itself government provided. So it's, it's, it's in, you know, inherently part of, uh, of government activity. Uh, as I say in the piece, you know, the real thing to think about with, with smart cars is the realization that in this country alone, we have 40,000 annual deaths uh, for traffic related fatalities. Um, nearly all of them are the result of driver error. Uh, frankly, human beings aren't particularly good uh, at, at, at managing that multi-ton piece of equipment. And with uh, you know distracted driving and people on their smartphones, it just gets worse. So I think we've already reached the point from a software and hardware standpoint where the autonomous vehicle technology itself, it's already better uh, a driver. Now, it's, does that mean it's not going to have any fatalities or any accidents? No, that's probably never going to happen. But, you know, imagine if somebody said, look, um, on the one hand, smart cars are going to kill 20,000 people a year. On the other hand, it's going to save the other 20,000 people a year that would have died if we didn't do it. At that point, do you say, okay, 20,000 is better than 40,000 by half, um, let's do it, or do you wait until it gets down to some much more uh, smaller number? I think those are the kinds of, you know, those, again, they're, they're, they're political questions as well as legal questions, and frankly, they're moral and ethical questions, and they're not the thing that the technologists themselves, the people developing this technology, are particularly good at answering and not particularly trained to answer. Two questions, Larry. Let's, let's imagine that we're talking again, I hope we will, in 2030, uh, 10 years' time, October 2030, uh, probably Ivanka Trump or something will be president, or Ivana, whatever her name is. Um, two predictions or two questions. Uh, the first is, of these four sectors, medical, agricultural, uh, transportation, and home, which revolution will be most self-evident in 2030? Where mm. it's clear to our, our our viewers that that this sector has radically transformed their life. It's not just theory anymore. It's not just 
futurists like you talking about the future. The future will have literally arrived. Yeah, I, I think probably, again, I'm terrible at predicting and, and 10 years is, uh, especially when you're talking uh, about technology. Uh, all, all futurists are terrible at predicting. You're just more honest than most futurists. Right? <laughs> I'm sure. But I think healthcare is probably the one that's inevitably uh, going to change. For If no other reason, then it's still... In some ways, you know, the modern healthcare system, particularly in this country, uh, it's really in the—I wouldn't say the Stone Age, but it really is—is is very rooted in 19th-century ideas about, you know, doctors as a sort of, uh, uh, you know, special uh, shamans and gurus uh, uh, who can't be questioned, uh, who have to do everything uh, personally and individually. There, there's sort of a lot of bad assumptions built into the healthcare system, and it's embedded in the insurance model and everything that goes with it. We're going to get rid of that, I think, that model as we realize, you know, the technology could do a lot better job and it's really going to change the way in which we even think about healthcare and, and you know, and, and certainly proactively as well as uh, defensively. And inevitably between now and 2030, there's going to be a huge national debate about regulation around vaccine, the COVID vaccine. Yeah. And it seems indeed of the increasing conspiracy theories about medical. Uh, and so the second part of my question, Larry, is, is, is pick a couple of areas. You're generally suspicious of regulation. I understand that and I respect that. But give me a couple of areas where there really you believe uh, there is a need to regulate. Oh, I, I thought you were going to ask me the opposite question, but that's uh, fine. The opposite one's easy for you. That's a softball. I'm asking you the, where regulation is important. Yeah. So I, I think it is with, uh, and frankly, it's mostly, as I say, the non-digital technologies, the ones that really can have a uh, quick and far-reaching and devastating effect if they're not introduced carefully and, and correctly. So again, anything having to do with, you know, the human genome, anything having to do with, with, uh, with uh, genetically engineering plants and animals, uh, anything having to do with sort of, you know, climate control, uh, we could make some pretty serious mistakes that are very difficult to recover from. Uh, those are areas that have basically historically always been, you know, you can't introduce a new drug, obviously, without a very extensive uh, testing protocol. Uh, I think that level of care and, and uh, deliberation should certainly apply to all these uh, new technologies that have even bigger potential positive, but also bigger potential negative. So even Larry Downs believes in some element of regulation. Larry, what about AI? You haven't mentioned AI. The White House uh, yeah. uh, earlier this year announced the $1 billion investment in AI and quantum computing, presumably to compete partly with the Chinese and to stimulate startups and innovation. Do you yeah. think there's a need to, um, to, 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 to regulate AI in some sense? I yeah, I, I don't see it yet. I, I think there's a lot of hysteria around it. And I know there's some, you know, fairly uh, well-known uh, technologists who say, you know, AI has the potential to end civilization as we know it and the robots take over and they kill us and all that sort of thing. You know, I, I have been working with AI technology as an engineer since the 1980s when the first commercial products came to be. They're obviously very simple and unsophisticated. Uh, and it's gotten much better, mostly because there's so much more computing power to uh, to put behind the inferences. Uh, but AI itself, it's a very broad category, lots of things inside of that category. But to me, none of them are, are at the level of, as I was saying before, about sort of, you know, the, the uh, genetic uh, code or, you know, human genome. Uh, I don't see any urgent need right now to be regulating AI. Uh, it's It's 
just software. It's more sophisticated software, but it's not reached the point yet where it could do catastrophic harm if not uh, handled correctly. Larry, I think I've been very kind with you so far. Uh, you, you have, Andrew. I'm, I'm really, I'm really worried now. Exactly. What's coming? So you know me. I'm not generally a very kind person. Uh, the, the, your, your Harvard piece is, is excellent. Everyone, of course, should read it. But you suggest uh, that that lots of startups are doing wonderfully innovative things. One of the companies that you you cite or you seem to cite as a model of innovation is Palantir, the, uh, your friend and my Peter Thiel startup, uh, to my mind at least, a surveillance company. What's so great about Palantir? And aren't you at all worried by, by some of these rogue companies of Silicon Valley? Uh, so the, I'll answer the last part first. Yes, uh, there are there are definitely some developments uh, in some technologies, some companies that uh, definitely raise red flags, uh, even for me. Uh, I mentioned Palantir, not uh, as any way endorsing uh, their management or, or their product, but just to say that you know here was a, a company involved in analytics that uh, cl clearly was going to raise tremendous amount of money, suggesting that there was a lot, you know, at least from a Wall Street perspective, a lot of potential for that analytics. Um, and all it's that, true that I yeah. mean, they're supported by the the surveillance industry, by the CIA, and, and who knows where all those analytics are going? Doesn't that worry you? Well, it does. Of course, you know, I'm, I'm a civil libertarian uh, at heart, and that's, you know, that's where I started with all this. But, you know, I still remember September 11th and uh, how uh, we were very uh, caught off guard and concerned that our intelligence gathering, which was all based on humans and human connections, was frankly terrible and inefficient and ineffective. Um, and uh, there was a need to do a lot better job. And a lot of these technologies uh, if used correctly, if with the right kind of controls and transparency, are important. Um, uh, we need surveillance, uh, and not just after. You know, we can't just want surveillance after something goes wrong. If it's not in place beforehand, we're not going to stop. You know, uh, rogue states and rogue terrorist groups from doing things we don't want to do. Well, there you have it. Uh, this this show is very balanced. We have Larry arguing that we need surveillance. We have many other people arguing that we live now in a in a surveillance capitalist system. Uh, and it's great to have Larry on the show. Uh, everyone should look at this this excellent piece in the Harvard Business Review: a measured approach to regulating fast changing tech, which is as Larry always is measured. His new book. Uh, pivot to the future is also very me measured and very interesting in terms of making sense of all these new technologies. Uh, Larry, you're stuck in the Berkeley Hills, if that's the right way of putting it, um, yeah. during the, the pandemic. In addition to pivoting uh, to pivot to the future and, and your other writings, what else should people be reading in these strange times? Well, I like to, you know, I always go back to classics uh, myself, and I mentioned, in fact, in the piece, uh, how much uh, some of the the anxiety around technology today really you know, brings me back all the way back to the 1970s and Alvin Toffler's uh, groundbreaking book, Future Shock, and, and you know, some of his other books as well. But you know, I think Future Shock really did a very nice job of sort of describing the, the panic around technology uh, and where it comes from and you know, why it gets worse over time. Uh, he's certainly been proven, I think, uh, quite a, a good predictor, if nothing else, in the intervening decades. And it's never a bad idea to go right back to the beginning and, and sort of see where it all started. You've been listening to Keynote, 
hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.